Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me to first or rather second Kings chapter fourteen or page three oh three in our Bibles here. This morning we're going to be talking about the sin that every one of us has. Pride. And uh, if you think maybe you don't have pride and want to stand up and let us know, guess what everybody else is thinking? (laughs) That guy has pride. Do you realize that pride is the original sin, both of Satan as well as humanity? In Isaiah 14, we have like a poetic description of that moment of Satan's fall from being the greatest angel to being the devil we now have. And his statement was this, I will be like the most high. Pride was that he wanted to be like God. And then Satan turns around and what's the first sin of mankind? How did Satan tempt Adam and Eve? He says about this, you know, this fruit that God said, don't eat this fruit. If you eat it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan said he wanted to be like God. Adam and Eve sinned. They wanted to be like God. Guess what our problem is at the core when we have pride? It's usurping the prerogatives of God, acting like, desiring to be God in some sense. A couple traits to be looking for in ourselves today. I'll do what I want self-will. I am right and thus superior. I want admiration, approval, respect. That's the glory issue. And I want control. Let's do it my way. Do you realize these are all legitimate prerogatives of God? He's self-willed indeed. He is superior. He deserves glory. And guess what? He does it his way because he is the almighty and infinite authority over all. And so when we have these attitudes, we are cutting into his territory. So when we recognize, do do you recognize some of these traits in yourself or just in your spouse or somebody else you work with maybe? No, we all have a case of this virus, and unchecked, it will lead to destruction, like the king that we study today here in 2 Kings 14, a king named Amaziah. Just a warning, last night in the service, at least once I caught myself saying Amazon instead of Amaziah. So just chuckle to yourself quietly if I do that the first time. Second time, raise your hand. Third time, maybe talk to the elders. Amaziah is our king. In the second year of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. So Judah is the southern kingdom. We won't put the map up today, but that's the southern kingdom. Israel's the north. He, Amaziah, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His name was his mother's name was Jehoadan. She was from Jerusalem. Okay, so we got it in mind. It's Amaziah, Joash's son. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
I wish the passage stopped here, but you got that little word, but. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father or forefather David had done. In everything, he followed the example of his father, indeed his father, King Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. So he did what was right, except we could describe him as mostly godly, which is a really sad description. To be mostly godly should, should bother us. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord in many ways. He knew God. We assume he was regular worshiping at the temple just down the street from his own palace there in Jerusalem. We're going to see that in the early years, he, he kept the law in, in one particular way and maybe others as well. But something is wrong with his brand of obedience. It's not the same level of obedience as his forefather David. Now, later on, we're going to go to 2 Chronicles 25 because it tells the, the story with more detail than here. But um, let me just quickly show you the description, uh, the parallel description of what uh, 2 Chronicles says about the overview of Amaziah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. That tells us he did what was right some of the time. He did what was right half-heartedly. Every parent understands half-hearted obedience. Right? You, you tell them, clean your room, and then you tell them again, and about the third time, you need to go clean your room. Okay, Mom, I'll clean my room. And they indeed clean the room, but not wholeheartedly. You have the obedience, but it's not wholehearted. As a parent, you would just long for them to be thinking, well... Of course, I'll clean my room. Mom and Dad have raised me and paid for everything and take care of everything else in the house and the yard. I'll happily clean just my own room, right? Keep dreaming. <laughs> but that's maturity. Wholehearted obedience. How many times does our Heavenly Father feel like that? Half-hearted obedience uh, at, the, at the bottom of your outline, I've listed six principles of pride, basically, that, that lead to ruin. The first one is this, half-hearted obedience to God, which involves ignoring certain sins. Because here's the thing, half-hearted obedience is always pride, because it's saying, I'm going to keep control of the other half. God, you can be in, in control of this but I'm controlling that. I, I, I wonder if Amaziah ever prayed, oh Lord, help me to see how I can obey you better. Lord, show me me. Show, show, me, show me my heart. And, and do you realize that that is essentially the contrast between Amaziah and the contrast the text makes in verse 3, but not like his father David. Do you remember how David prayed? Compared to Amaziah, David prayed this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous, the word means evil or sinful or wicked, any sin in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me to the things that will matter over there. 
in eternity. So I can't be half-hearted. And, and really, that's what distinguished David from any other king was this humility. Oh God, search my heart. But instead, Amaziah receives this faint praise. Sort of godly. What we don't want to hear when we come before our Savior someday who provided eternal life and blessings showered all over our life here and there, we don't want to hear kind of well done, kind of good, and kind of faithful servant. You see, the high places were not removed. the, The writer keeps noting that, and that was, in fact, exactly what his dad had done. He had left these these uh, places of pagan worship. He let them continue, knowing that that would be a continual temptation to many of the Israelites to go there instead of to the temple where there was focused, legitimate worship of our God who is indeed greater. They were not removed. So there was unaddressed sin. That's the contrast between David and Joash when it comes to examples that Amaziah could have followed. We know that David sinned seriously. We know the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. We think it couldn't get much worse than that. So why is David the example of godliness? The bottom line was his humility. It's, it's Psalm 32 and it's Psalm 51. His repentant heart creating me a clean heart. He addressed his sin instead of defending it. Second principle of of this progressive pride that takes place in us is following questionable spiritual examples. Amaziah well knew his dad. He well knew the story of David. He chose instead, it says at the end of verse 3, in everything he followed the example of his father Joash. And that is so true, down to some of the details. His dad, Joash, was the the king that was rescued at age one from death, and then crowned king at age seven, and then mentored by godly priest Jehoiada until he got to adulthood. And in fact, his early reign had some admirable godly traits. He's the one that restored the, the, uh, the deteriorated temple. But then after Jehoiada died... Joash, it says, listen to his officials, his peers. And he deteriorated to worshiping idols and eventually even executed Jehoiada's son who told him, warned him prophetically to stop it. That path is exactly the path we see Amaziah taking today. Early godliness, but then began to worship idols and wouldn't listen to the rebuke of God's prophet. So many patterns are repeated. You know, dads and moms, our example is so powerful. There's something about the way we live that is essentially hardwired into the expectations of our kids. And that's for good and for bad. Positive traits and negative traits. But if there is a core trait that we are communicating, it would be pride or humility. And of course, we're somewhere on that spectrum. It's not even just about doing all the right things, doing what is right. It's this attitude of pride that brought down Amaziah. So, yeah, we we repeat the character weaknesses 
of our parents. We actually we tend to re repeat or sometimes react to them. Um, sometimes the best wake-up call, if you want to find out what those are, is to get married because now suddenly there is this other person in the room watching us and relating to us who has some amazing observations because they also know the people that raised you. Now, it's not good to say you're just like your mom, just like your dad. That's going to bring joy or peace. But we get the dynamic. And so our, do we have the humility to say, I want to really learn. I really want to learn what are my character weaknesses, David. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And so if it's my spouse that points them out, if it's a friend at church that points them out, whoever it might be that I want to, I want to have the humility, I want to have the self-awareness to know this is what I need to work on. Because otherwise we will sin by default. That is those character sins that we don't even notice because they have kind of been hardwired into our nature. David prayed in humility. I take it Joash and his son here, Amaziah, not so much. Well, Amaziah's dad, Joash, if you recall the stories, uh, the account of uh, chapter 11 and 12, uh, Joash was assassinated, and the next paragraph tells of at least one time that Amaziah clearly followed the Lord. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put the sons of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers, each is to die for his own sins. So should, should his father's assassins be executed in justice? Yes. Leviticus 24, 17. But should like so often the kings did, was to destroy the whole families. We've seen that. Should that take place? No. Deuteronomy 24, 16, no. So he, he handled that justly. He handled it with the restraint he was, that the law described. He, he did it right. And I, I would suppose there would have been a good number of other things that he followed, especially in these early years. It, I mean, it, it's kind of like the list that we can imagine in our own mind looking at ourselves. If we want to look at ourselves that way, we can say, I do a lot of things right. I mean, here I am on church on Sunday morning. I can be generous. I, 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 I'm nice to most people. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I serve. I volunteer. You know, we kind of all have our nice list, the Santa thing, you know. Kind of, it's kind of like a ready defense Amaziah would have had that list, but he didn't really address that core issue of pride. And as we get to this point in the account, we actually come to the, to the end of the kind of godly portion of Amaziah's life. Um, we now find that he fought two significant wars that really marked his life. Uh, the first one was a mighty victory over the enemy, Edom. The second was a civil war against the Jewish brothers to the north in Israel. And frankly, the issue that we're going to see is that victory in the first war turned his heart into a stubborn, foolish arrogance. That was his downfall. Verse 7. 
He was the one who defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and captured Selah in battle, calling it Jokthiel, the name it has to this day. Edom, uh, we've noted before, was that uh, border uh, enemy to the kind of southeast of, uh, of Judah and Israel. And they'd been kind of a perennial enemy. And he defeated them. Uh, 10,000 Edomites. This is the only verse in, in 2 Kings about this war. But it's, it, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the lead sentence of the article. It's all there. It, it, this is fantastic. It's a big deal. Generations before, King Joram of, of Judah had lost significant territory to Edom. And Amaziah, with God's help, no doubt, was able to win it back. Edom had been raiding uh, Judah and Israel from the east. And he pretty much took care of that with this victory. But there's a lot more to this story than the single verse here in 2 Kings 14. The rest of the chapter here in 2 Kings now goes to that second war, the civil war. And we'd ask, well, why would Amaziah go to war with Israel? They had been allies for so long. Why would he fight King Jehoash? whom we studied last week. He's the one that was there when Elisha died and striking the arrows on the ground, that story. So to get the rest of the details and understand a little bit more what's going on in Amaziah, let's go to 2 Chronicles 25. 2 Chronicles 25, if you're in our, our Bibles, to go f- to page 362. 362. Why would he pick a fight with neighboring uh, Jewish tribes to the north. In uh, 2 Chronicles 25, 11, first of all, you get another summary phrase in verse 11. Amaziah then marshaled his strength and led his army to the Valley of Salt, where he killed 10,000 men of Seir, another name for Edom. So, okay, that's, that's the brief version. But let's read in verses 5 to 10, the prequel, what led up to this Verse 5, it says how Amaziah called the people of Judah together. First of all, right, uh, he had the two tribes. You see Judah and Benjamin. And uh, he pulls together an army of 300,000 men ready for military service. Okay? But he wanted more, verse 6. He also hired 100,000 fighting men from Israel for 100 talents of silver. More is better, right? So he hires... The, from the tribes to the north, 100,000 mercenaries. But a man of God, a prophet, came to him and said, O king, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the people of Ephraim. Even if you go and fight courageously in battle, God will overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. Amaziah asked the man of God, But what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? The money. The man of God replied, The Lord can give you much more than that. So Amaziah dismissed the troops who had come to him from Ephraim and sent them home. So he obeyed the prophet. They were furious with Judah, these troops that got sent home, and left for home in a great rage. So, He hires them. They start out as allies. He strategized that, you know, more is always better. I want to make sure my victory is secure because he was thinking just like the world always thinks. There is strength in numbers, but there's also pride. 
in numbers. He was thinking, I, I mean, if he was concerned, you'd like to see him saying, oh Lord, please help us as we fight our enemies. But he didn't. He began to just marshal his own resources. It's, it's how we think by simple nature. More is strength. If, if kids want to go out for ice cream, they, they rally their siblings and then approach the weakest parent, right? <laughs> and, and maybe they get to caught for ice cream. And, and we, we want more votes on our side to preserve what the values, the rights, the freedoms, right? Or if there's issues at work, we need to, we need to unionize to, to, to do this. And, and, and we always need bigger numbers in our, in our bank account or in the 401k because we just have the mindset that more is, is winning and more is guarantee and more is strength, not sometimes realizing how pride becomes the core of more. Principle three about the path of destructive pride. Faith in numbers instead of faith in God. I've underlined two phrases in that paragraph we just read. Uh, the first one is in verse eight. God has the power to help or overthrow. Do we believe that? God is in charge of overthrowing and helping. And then in verse 9, I've underlined the phrase, the Lord can give you much more than that. God doesn't need more people to get his will done, and he can take care of any money issues. Amaziah, the king, was saying, money, what, the, you're telling me to send them home, but I've already given them the money, and you know how war works. You hire somebody, it's a contract, and you can't get your money back, and they're going to go home. I get no. The Lord can give you much more than that. What a foundational, financial, spiritual principle. The Lord can give you more. Do we believe that God has the power, first of all, without a majority? Um, I want there to be a moral majority. But I don't, I don't put confidence in God's will being dependent, fail or flourish, based on on an election or the ballot box. Uh, if, if my vote loses, I have to ask, what is God doing so that his truest will still wins? What is he doing? God has the resources. How about the resources to give us as much? Do we believe God has the resources to give us as much money as he wants us to have? Um, God understands that we're struggling if driving to work and gas is $5. Suddenly you divide everything by five, right? God understands when you go to the grocery store and, and the prices are going up somewhere between your hand being here and your hand taking that item off the shelf. And the price has gone up. He understands if we're approaching retirement or in retirement and and uh, the market's eating up our nest egg. He understands that. But that's what the man of God was saying. That's what, that's what God's message was, is the Lord can give you much more than that. 
we, we have to retrain our mind to realize he's the one with power to, to overthrow, if need be, or help. He's the one who gives us as much as we're supposed to have and helps us. The Israelite soldiers were furious to be sent home and uh, felt humiliated. And we can kind of tell that things are not going to go well. Yet, Amaziah goes off to fight the Edomites and wins big time. Killed 10,000. Verse 11. Here's a little bit more info. The army of Judah also captured 10,000 men alive, took them to the top of the cliff, and threw them down so that they were all dashed to pieces. Not fun to read. Doesn't really seem like legitimate warfare. The, the writer doesn't make any comment, but it's just that's, that's what they did. They disposed of their prisoners of war in this barbaric act. Meanwhile, verse 13 the troops that Amaziah had sent back, that's the Israelites, and had not allowed to take part in the war, raided Judean towns from Samaria to Beth Horon. They killed 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. So they're so offended and they were so bloodthirsty, hungry for battle, that on their way home, they just massacre Judeans, Jewish brothers, on the way home. Now you know there is serious conflict coming. And now we find that Amaziah, at this point, somewhere in this transition from the first war to the second, turns a terrible corner spiritually. There's sometimes a certain trigger event. If we have half-hearted obedience, that was a decision that took me the wrong direction. Verse 14. When Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought back the gods or idols of the people of Seir. He set them up as his own gods, bowed down to them, and burned sacrifices to them. The anger of the Lord burned against Amaziah, and he sent a prophet to him. So another visit by a prophet who said, Why do you consult this people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hand? Yeah, that's a good question. While he was still speaking, the king said to him, Have we appointed you an advisor to the king? Stop. Why be struck down? Actually, his dad, Joash, had struck down the warning of a prophet, the prophet who warned him. So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this idolatry and you have not listened to my counsel. You're listening to consulting idols, and you're not listening to me. It's, it seems preposterous to us that Amaziah would go from knowing the Lord and, uh, and worshiping at the temple, something in this situation tipped him over the edge, and he brings back these idols. Did he take them just as trophies and then later decide to worship them? I don't know. But by the time he got home with the idols, picture what's all going on in his mind. He's just had this incredible victory, 10,000 in in, defeated in the battle, 10 more thousand prisoners of war. He should be coming home as the hero. 
on the way home. Someone informs him, yeah, and the Israelites just killed 3,000 of your citizens. And so now he's angry, and he's proud, and he's angry, and he's conflicted, and, and, and how, how do I get hero status back? And he decides the best thing to do would be to get revenge. Because he's a hero on one hand, but not very popular in the town that lost all those people. So when he's in that dilemma, does he, does he cry out to God and say, oh God, what shall I do? No, because he's missing that key trait of humility. You see, proud people don't cry out to God for wisdom. At least not authentically, sincerely. Proud people react and do what their emotions drive them to do. Proud people seek a solution exactly like the rest of the world. And that seems to be why he decided to consult these idols. The God thing isn't working. I'll do what the rest of the people do. Principle four, seeking counsel from the world and refusing God's counsel. He sets up idols. He, he, the prophet says, why do you consult these people's gods? They couldn't save the Edomites. Why, why would, it hasn't worked for them. And how often, though, do we use the world's wisdom for our problems as believers? Hey, it's one thing if you want to Google your medical symptoms, but if we have relational problems, we have fears, we have ethical dilemmas of right and wrong. We have moral temptations. Are we really going to go to the world and say, what do you think I should do? Because unfortunately, so many times, believers end up doing exactly the kinds of things that would probably be, be discussed on some TV talk show with people sitting around a table, and we end up doing the exact same thing. I've seen too many social media memes posted by believers that are actually spouting selfish, proud, angry, vengeful, unbiblical principles. And I wonder, where did that come from? Actually, I don't wonder where it comes from, because that's exactly what the world is posting. So if we are saying what the world is saying, we are thinking like the world is thinking, and we're consulting the wrong side. That's idolatry. And the anger of the Lord burned because he did what he felt. He, he did what he thought would take the immediate pressure off. He did what he felt good venting about. And the Lord's anger burned and sent a prophet. And this time, Amaziah was having nothing to do with it. No. I had enough listening to God. I'm doing it my way. That, that's a core. I want to be God principle. One of the saddest moments that we have sometimes as pastors is when someone comes to tell us something. And it's, it's, it's stated sometimes just this clear. I know the Bible says this, 
but I decided to do this. I almost expect the floor to shake. Will we really defy something that God has clearly... I get it, there's a lot of areas of conviction and preference, but would we really defy as believers in Christ something that God seems to clearly say in His Word? Amaziah's self-will, foolish arrogance. And the prophet says, I know, verse 16, that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this, idolatry, and have not listened to my counsel. Do we seek God's counsel? Will we recognize God's counsel? Because sometimes I think we get just pretty saturated with the world's thinking that I'm not, I'm not sure we are carefully discerning. Do, do we assume because we found it in a Christian bookstore, heard it on a religious podcast, or were told something by a therapist who mentioned something about Christian, would we assume that's biblical advice or could it actually still sometimes be selfish and pride-based, emotional-driven? How are we going to know? Because labels don't prove everything. How, how do you know if it's biblical? I'd suggest a couple of things. Number one is this issue of humility. Do we first of all have the humility before God to say, God, I really want to know what you want me to do? And I would submit to that. Because that's going to determine and color everything else that we read, see, or hear. Do I really want to do what God wants me to do, or do I want to do and find and defend what I want to do? So do we have the humility? But then secondly, does whatever advice or counsel that we are seeking come with clear biblical principles? In other words, it's okay. You would see the Bible references and go, yeah, that's kind of basic, and I don't know how else to take that. So am I humble as I approach it? Is it biblical? And then a third indicator is, is there any mention in this advice or counsel about sin? That there's right and wrong. Does, does, it, does it talk about uh, confessing sin, uh, uh, avoiding sin? Are we humble? Is it stated in Scripture in some clear sense? And then, the bottom line is going to be, will we have the humility to obey it? But is there a reference to sin so that I know that there is a right and a wrong because I am accountable to Almighty God? Amaziah could have, could have avoided the coming disaster, but he didn't address his pride. So instead he says, what I'm going to do is get revenge. That's why I'm going to fight against my brothers in the north. Revenge will make me happy. Ever had that thought? I'll be happy if they have to pay. It's a tragically empty wish. Revenge will never heal our ego because our ego is never satisfied. Revenge will never accomplish it. This was the beginning of the end for Amaziah. At this point in the account then, as we go to that civil war, the account of Second Chronicles 25 and 2 Kings 14 are almost exactly the same. Uh, we're going to stay in Second Chronicles since we're already here. 
But Amaziah does launch a second war that becomes his disaster. Verse 17. After Amaziah, king of Judah, consulted his advisors, that's exactly what his dad Joash did at that turning point of his life. After he consulted his advisors, he sent this challenge to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the, king, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, come meet me face to face. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, with a parable, a thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon. Give me your daughter to my son. Give your daughter to my son in marriage, like I can tell you what to do. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. What's the meaning of the parable? You say to yourself that you have defeated Edom and now you are arrogant and proud. He nailed it. But stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. For God so worked that he might hand them over to Jehoash because they sought the gods of Edom. The parable was so true. Yet, Jehoash, in Israel, he's a pride guy too, by the way, said, you know what? I was thinking about this little thistle, little plant about this big and comparing it to the biggest plant in, 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 the, in the forest, the cedar trees of Lebanon, and you know, you're this little thistle. Of course, he's saying, I'm the big tree. You don't, you don't have a chance. This stuff you trash talk you expect to hear across the offensive line, right? You don't have a chance, and, and you know what? Some beast walked by and just squashed you, and you're done. And he was right. But he was right because God had determined that he would hand them over. He makes sure that he's going to be destroyed because he sought those idols, because he was a, a proud, pride-driven man. That's what got him into this conflict. Pride got him into this conflict. Principle five, creating conflicts, trying to prove our importance. You, you, want, to, you want to get on a destructive path of pride? Uh, pick fights. Engage in conflicts to prove how important you are. Amaziah wanted to restore his image. After winning a war, but then losing those 3,000, he wanted to feel like a winner. He, wanted to, he, he wasn't going to take this sitting down. And King Jehoash saw right through him, and he was totally right. You're going to ruin yourself and your nation if you go to war with us. Arguments are by nature saturated with pride. And you feel that anger coming up to disagree, disagree with your spouse, uh, uh, co-workers, friend or foe, Christian or non-Christian, uh, generally driven by pride. Now, understand that disagreements are normal, and humble, calm discussion can be very good. But the test that it has to pass is the 1 Corinthians 13 test. If you're going to discuss disagreements, it's got to pass the test of, is it kind? It doesn't boast. It's not proud or puffed up. It's not easily angered. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's not just for wedding ceremonies. That, that's, how, that's, how, that's how Christians can disagree. 
when it passes those tests. So what drives you when you disagree? We can see how this is going to turn out for Joash, verse 20. He didn't listen to God, so God made sure they would lose. Verse 21 then begins to tell us the terrible price he paid. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. So he actually makes the first move. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. So it's on Judah's soil. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. So he's a prisoner of war now. Then Jehoash brought him, Amaziah, to Jerusalem. And when he's there, what did he do? He broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of God that had been in the care of Obed-Edom, together with the palace treasures and the hostages. And then he returned to Samaria. Wow. What a list of consequences for this spiraling pride routed the army, so the army is humiliated, captured Amaziah, what's that like to be the prisoner of war now, brought back home like a child running away from home, broke down the 600 feet of wall so that this breach instantly weakened the, the capital city of Jerusalem and the nation because now there's a 600-foot door wide open for enemies. The gold, silver, treasures that David had collected are going out the door. This is actually the fourth of seven times I read that uh, some temple treasures leave over these centuries, eventually culminating when Nebuchadnezzar will take uh, Judah captive uh, to Babylon. And then add to that the hostages. Jehoash, the, I mean rather, Amaziah the king is one of the one of the hostages, all because of pride. God responds to pride. And God supports humility. I was looking through scriptures this week on... I know that I've read over and over this kind of this persistent theme about pride and humility. So here's, here's a sample. 1 Samuel 2.7, God, he humbles, he exalts. On what basis? Psalm 18, you save the humble but bring low those who are haughty. He, he, he sees and he knows and he addresses those things. Towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Ezekiel, the lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. God just has a way of flipping things eventually. Or then Jesus put it so clear, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What part of God's attention are we getting? We would expect the world to be fueled by pride. Greed is generally pride-driven, right? We want nicer, better, more stuff. So we have, to, we have to think through, is this God's blessing? Is this pride? 
power is pride-driven, whether it's political or positions in any organization, including churches. Is this God thing or is this pride-driven? Now even immorality of every kind is paraded as pride. Pride parades, etc. As if immorality and pride were a good thing. We should expect that from the world. It, 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 that, that, that kind of is par. But what about us? Our pride offends God, and every time we fuel our pride, defend ourselves illegitimately, it offends God. We're stealing His glory. And we see where it leads. It, it only gets worse, verse 25. Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. He... He lived for some time, but do you notice what it doesn't say? It doesn't say he reigned. And uh, Bible students have, have read that and go, is that why, like in Chronicles, it's the next chapter, his son Uzziah reigns next, and he starts at age 16. Why would you have that 16-year-old run the kingdom? Is it because some think that actually Amaziah was actually imprisoned longer, not like brought home immediately, but he was a prisoner of war for some time or else. Maybe he came back and he was, he was so humiliated and ineffective, there was this co-regencies, and there were a lot of co-regencies where fathers and sons' reigns over, overlapped. We're not sure. Finally, verse 27 says, from the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord. There was this moment, it seems to be, when he took those idols home from Edom. From the time that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord, they, they that's his own people, conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. And he was brought back by horse and buried with his fathers in the city of Judah. He lived like his dad, and he died like his dad. Let's just review these marks of pride where we become or act or desire to be God. First of all, I'll do what I want. Self-will. I'll do what I want. That's the first impulse of everything, right? I'll do what I want. Do we then submit to his will? I am right. How easily do you back down from being right? I want admiration. What will we do to, A, be admired, B, avoid any, any embarrassment? I mean, you realize pride is both an introvert and an extrovert sin. Extroverts want to show how witty and smart they are, and introverts want to make sure they don't let on that anybody would think they weren't witty or smart. We're all kind of dealing with the same thing. We want the approval and admiration. And we want control. Whatever, whatever, whatever it takes kind of to, to get our way. This, this is just us. But no, actually, this is God. And we are not in his place. And we 
have to learn submission to him because, and here's one more verse, this is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Which side of God's attention will we have? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know our proud hearts that from Adam and Eve's sin onward, we are... uh, bound to this defensive um, self-will. Help us, Lord, to have the heart of David, who in spite of his terrible, sinful mistakes, had the humble heart of coming before you in confession uh, and, and making things right with you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to come before you, humble ourselves, and, and then leave it to you uh, for any, any attention or approval or uh, affirmation that comes from others, Lord, that's, that's, that's in your hands. Help us not to, to claim your rights, but to give and submit ours to yours. In Jesus' name, amen.